Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. So, uh, we have been going through a uh, series called Breakthrough. And uh, in this series, we've been looking at the early church in the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, and that's we were, where we've been camping out. That's where we'll keep camping out. And uh, if you've got a, a Bible with you, whether it's on your phone, whether it's a physical book with pages, uh, it's going to be towards the end in what's called the New Testament. And uh, so that's where we're going to be camping out for really this week and the, the next three weeks after this is uh, looking at uh, essentially the launch of the church right after the resurrection of Jesus. And what we see is that in this launch of the church, there was some uh, unprecedented breakthrough that the church saw. And, uh, and I think that most of us probably realize that, uh, that blessings rarely come without some prior uh, equivalent of, of hurt. Oftentimes, we know that's the case in our lives and the lives of people around us. And uh, A.W. Tozer, who is a theologian, phenomenal theologian, he actually said once, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he's hurt him deeply. And, and the idea isn't so much that God is, is actively doing things in our lives to hurt us, but he's putting us in positions that the world can't sustain us, that the things around us can't hold on to us. And, and ultimately, we have to fall back on God. We have to fall back on his plans, on, uh, on being obedient to him, on trusting that he's the one in control. Because every time we grasp for control, when we open our hands to look and see what it looks like, it's just sand falling through our fingers, right? We, we know this. And, uh, and we can clearly see this in the early breakthrough of the early church. And so if we pick up from last week, where, uh, where we left off, we talked about how all the believers had all things in common, right? This, this crazy concept of all of them having all things in common, what that looked like, what it meant for them, and the different contributions that they were making to the church, that they were making to each other, that they were making to the kingdom of God, and everything that they were doing, they were all in, sold out for the mission of Jesus. And so when we pick up from there, Peter and John, who, remember, Peter's the one who just preached the sermon that really launched the church and set the trajectory for where they were going. John was another apostle of Jesus. And uh, so the two of these men after this, if we were to keep reading, this is in chapter 3. I'm not going to read it because we don't have time. Uh, but chapter 3, what happens is Peter and John, they go out to keep preaching the good news of Jesus. And as they're uh, on their way to the temple, there's a man who's crippled. He can't walk, which means he can't work, which means he's impoverished. And, uh, and he's just looking for anybody to help him out. And so Peter and John come up to him, and this is where they tell him, silver and gold have we none. We can't give you the money that you're looking for, but we can give you something else. Get up and walk. And the man miraculously is healed. He stands up, picks up his bed where he lays, and he's able to walk again. And he actually follows them into the temple where they're now going to go to preach the good news. And so we're going to pick up Acts chapter 4 this morning. And what we're going to see is right when Peter and John walk into the temple, start preaching, this is what happens. Acts 4 verse 1. And it says, And as they, Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so this was a big deal. And so what they did, it says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, 
because it was already evening. So they went at night, they go and they start preaching. All the religious people in the temple get upset. The people who are running the things in there, they get angry. They arrest them, throw them in jail, leave them there overnight. We'll deal with this in the morning, right? So, so here's the thing about Christianity. Christianity is a bold system of beliefs. It's a bold movement. Uh, and, and I think it's just that. It's really more of a movement than it is a religion. That, that we're not just coming and trying to do things for the sake of habit, for doing things to attain favor or anything like that. We're actually, instead of doing these things, hoping that God will give us something, we're actually, because he's already given something to us, it started this movement of Christianity that is just pouring out generosity into the world. We're looking back pre-Eden, before anything ever went wrong, and we're bringing that back to the world, correcting the things that are wrong, uh, standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. Uh, we're bringing healing, reconciliation. This is what the movement of Christianity is all about, and it's a bold system. It's a system that goes into the most broken areas, the most hurting areas, uh, the, the places that are falling apart and we bring Jesus because we believe that real healing can be found. So here's the thing, you've got to understand in this time that uh, this, was, this was going on with the religious elites. And so uh, these religious elites had a problem with this Christian movement. Uh, in fact, we see them specifically have a problem with the leaders in the Christian church. And so the religious elites, what we have to understand is they actually had some power during this time. It's not like uh, now where any pastor of any church can go out and we can say whatever we want and people are like, okay, and, right, see? And uh, you missed that, that's okay. And, uh, but this was a culture that was run by uh, a religious system. I mean, think about this for a moment. This was the religious elites who just on a whim said arrest them and they were arrested for believing something different. Just because we don't see eye to eye, the religious elite had the authority to get them cast into prison. So this, is, this isn't the culture that we're used to. This isn't the America that we know. This is 2,000 years ago in the middle of Israel running on Judaism and Christianity comes up and suddenly the people who had authority in Judaism have a problem with Christianity. These are the people who had the power to influence culture to absolutely hate anyone who carried the name of Christ. This is a big deal for Peter and John to be coming up against these people. I mean, backtrack just a little bit. These are the people who put Jesus on the cross and murdered him. And, and they didn't just kill him. This was a brutal murder. These people had power. These people had authority. They had sway in the community. And so, you know, if there was anyone outside of the Roman government who could uh, make your life miserable, it was these people. And so they arrested them. And so here's the thing that we have to understand. Nowhere in the Bible does it do we ever have the promise of an easy life once we start following Jesus? We have to understand that. It's not in there. What we do have is we have a promise that we'll have a fulfilled life once we start following Jesus. And these are two very different things. The Bible frequently warns of the persecution that will come to those who bear the name of Jesus. But Jesus himself said, I come to give life and to give it in fullness. 
to give you the life that, that you can't attain on your own. Well, we're going out trying to do these things to make us finally feel really human. Jesus says, I have that for you. That's the promise that we're made. And that's hope. That's the hope uh, that we're reminded of over and over again in the Bible. Because hope can cause you to do some crazy things, right? I mean, hope is, is what drives that high school freshman to open himself up to heartbreak. Hope is what drives us to pursue our dreams. Hope is what drives us to be generous even when we're unsure. Hope is what drives my bank account, right? We can relate on that one, hopefully. Hope is what enables us to be a light in this world even in the face of danger. Hope is what keeps us moving when everything else in the world is pushing against us. And it was hope, that specific hope, that led these two followers of Jesus to get arrested. Because at the end of the day, we know that as Christians, there is no pain that we can face that will ever even come close to the future glory that we have in store. All of the badness of this world can't even come close to the goodness that we have promised for us. And that pressed the early church into an unprecedented place of boldness. And I mean, listen, my wife and I, we've had a couple kids. Specifically, my wife has been the one to have the couple of kids. Thank goodness. And, uh, and so here's what that means, is after all of the craziness and the pain of having the first kid, she decided to do it again, right? And I mean, those of, those of you who are parents, you get this, you've seen this. It's, there's just something about it. You go through this process, and, and I remember thinking in the hospital rooms, nope, this is it. This is it. And literally, the baby was born. It's like, oh my gosh, I should do this like 10 times. This is the best. My wife may not agree yet, but, but eventually she'd agreed to the point that she had another kid because the pain that was taking place then had nothing on the future goodness that she experienced when she got to hold that child in her arms, right? So we get this to some degree even here on earth, but how much more the glory that awaits us in heaven? the glory that awaits us when Jesus does come and make all things right. And so this is what the apostles had on their minds. This is the hope that drove them. And so check this out. This is cool. When we jump down to verse 4 in our text, it says, but many of those who heard the word believed, because remember, they were out preaching. They were declaring this good news when the religious leaders came and stopped them. They were already into it. So many of those who had already heard what they had to say believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Remember, this was the same Peter who a couple of weeks ago we talked about how he went and he preached his first message after Jesus left, and 3,000 people were saved. And this is just a couple chapters later, and that number's jumped up another couple of thousand people. I mean, the church is just moving forward in unprecedented ways, and it's hinging right here, right now, on the boldness of the people who are declaring to be followers of Jesus. So let me be clear about something here. Your pain has a purpose. Your efforts are not in vain. And I think it's so important for us to remember this because it's so easy to, to find myself even asking, what's the point? Why, why am I putting in all of this effort? Why am I opening myself up to pain? Why am I opening myself up to heartbreak over and over again? And then I'm reminded that because as I move through this dirty, messy, broken world, 
that God is right there with me moving and restoring and healing and making whole and fixing things and bringing it all back to himself. And that makes it worth it. And that reminds me that there is a point. See, we don't always get to see the results right away. Listen, we don't always get to see the results at all, right? And, and this makes it difficult sometimes. But don't let, that, uh, don't let that fool you. God is still working. He's still moving. He's still bringing all things to himself to make all things right again. And we get to be a part of that. And, and I'm not just saying we are a part of that. I'm not saying we have to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. We get to have real, genuine purpose. Our lives can matter. And so the story keeps going. And the next day, uh, the rulers put Peter and John on trial. So uh, you've got to understand about this culture that, that what they're going to face right now uh, is when people would go into the temple and teach, they would do it under someone else's authority. So basically what that would look like is someone would go into the temple and they would begin to teach, and as they begin to teach, uh, they would always be quoting someone else, right? You only teach the things that somebody else taught you. You quote them, you do it on their authority. And so for Peter, to, for Peter and John to come into the temple and start preaching, they needed to know whose authority they were preaching under. That's going to be the first question that's going to hit them. And so they asked them that, and Peter and John do this absolutely crazy thing. Okay, I need you to remember a couple of things here. One, uh, remember, they're on trial, right? They just spent the night in jail. Now they're on trial in a place by the same people who murdered Jesus. Keep that on your mind. That's important, okay? Uh, and if you were here a couple weeks back, do you remember how Peter concluded that first sermon with the 3,000 people were, uh, were saved? He concludes it by, by just totally, bluntly, boldly calling the people out and saying, yeah, this is all about that Jesus, who, by the way, you were the ones to crucify. Well, Peter's at it again. And uh, same level of boldness. And uh, so they want to know who, uh, whose authority Peter and John are teaching and healing so this is exactly what Peter does. He says, yeah, it's that Jesus of Nazareth who you guys crucified, who you murdered. And so, so look at this. Uh, Acts 4 again. We'll jump to verse 10. And we'll read through this. And, and this is Peter's response to them. He says, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Remember, they, they healed that crippled man. That's who they were talking about. And they say, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. I mean, he's just going at these people now. The builders, uh, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the, key in on this word, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Oh man, there's so much goodness here that I just don't have time for. Uh, but hopefully you can pick up on just how crazy bold Peter is being right now on this trial. He just comes out of the gate swinging at these people, throwing them under the bus, uh, declaring all the things that they know that they're going to disagree with and saying that it was them who murdered Jesus because they wanted to put it off on the Romans. But no, we know who really did it. 
We know it was really Israel who, uh, who got sick of this man who was taking their authority, and you, you crucified Jesus. And so he's on trial, and he's got a trick up his sleeve. And this is it. There are consequences for the things that we do, right? And Peter's just throwing caution to the wind. He's going for it. I mean, when I think of boldness, I, I think of, like, kids have no filters, right? Have you guys noticed that? Man, there's just something about kids that they just say whatever they are thinking. And uh, so I, I was thinking back, not this last Christmas, but the year before, my daughter was only one. We were having Christmas dinner at the table with my in-laws, and I've got a Labrador and a Husky, and they're both outside. They're playing, and they're barking and everything. And my one-year-old daughter, out of nowhere, yells, shut up! And I'm like, I didn't know your mom taught you that word, right? I'm a pastor, guys, okay? And I mean, just out of nowhere, right? The kids just have this unprecedented way of hearing the things that happen when their mom talks, and, and they say those things anywhere. And they just, I'm going to ride this one all the way to the end, guys. And, uh, and I mean... So my, my daughter, and I'm sure any kids that you guys know, they have this just level of boldness where they just say things that you're like, wow, whose kid are you? Your mom should come and find you. Like, I don't teach my kids to talk like that. And, but, but listen, Peter has just taken it to another level. He's going for it. He, he's saying things that even my daughter would be afraid of saying. I mean, the, the level of boldness from Peter and John and, and what they say because of this boldness this is my favorite part. They say that because they realize they're unlearned men. Now, now this doesn't mean that they're stupid or uneducate, uneducated or anything like that. It means they were men that hadn't had a higher level of education. They were just ordinary people that Jesus just happened to pick up and, and start teaching. And yet their profound knowledge of the scriptures, their profound boldness dictated that, that what did they say at the very end? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Listen, church, whether you like it or not, there is an actual correlation between your boldness in the gospel and whether or not people will believe the Christianity that you tell them about and whether they believe it's the real deal or not. It is directly correlated to how bold you're willing to be about it. Because if I say that I'm not scared of death, but live my whole life as a hermit, you don't think that I'm actually not scared of death, right? If I never leave mom's basement, you're, you're like, no, Seth is terrified. He won't tell you that, but he's terrified of death. And, and on that same token, though, if I tell people that Jesus changed my life, and somebody confronts me about that, and I'm unwilling to talk about it, I don't have the boldness to follow through with it, are they really going to believe that Jesus ever changed my life? Your boldness in the gospel directly correlates to whether or not people will believe this Jesus that you're telling them about. And on the other side, when you are bold, well, that's when really cool things can happen. That's when, when people see that your trust in Jesus is beyond explanation, it starts getting the wheels turning, and they start thinking. And so that's what happens, and the story goes on. And so, don't forget, all of this happened uh, not just because of Peter and John preaching in the temple, but right before they went in to teach, they also healed a man who was crippled, and he came in with them. And so he's, he's actually right there with them in this trial. And so Peter gives this crazy speech to the people who are putting him on trial. The council is trying to figure out, what in the world are we going to do with these people? 
Because see, now the problem is they believe something that we think is wrong. Let's just, let's beat them, throw them in prison, whatever. But here's the problem. The people have just seen that they healed this cripple. I mean, everybody in Jerusalem has seen what's happened to this man. And there's, there always seems to be this, uh, this dichotomy between those who have authority not liking that Christianity is coming in, stripping authority and giving it rightfully to God, and then the actual people who are experiencing the goodness that Christianity brings of bringing healing, bringing restoration, bringing reconciliation, etc. We see this all over the Bible, and we even see it in our world today. Where So what are we supposed to do with them? Because we don't want all the people to turn on us, right? So they finally come back to Peter and John, and they, they decide that they can't get away with punishing them. That's, that's not going to work. So what they can do is they can tell them that they're not allowed to preach the name of Jesus anymore. So they come and they say, Peter, John, we're going to let you guys go free on the condition that you no longer teach the name of Jesus. And, and so listen. Now, of course, Peter and John could have just agreed and gone free, right? They could have crossed their fingers, stuck them behind their backs, and agreed and gone free, and then kept preaching the name of Jesus. But instead, Peter, in the spirit of just unprecedented boldness, no, I don't think I will. And so now they're, they're trying, oh man, this is the only plan that we came up with. And so they start threatening them and everything else, and, and Peter and John are just like, yeah, no, we're going to keep preaching Jesus. You can figure out what you're going to do to us, and when you're done, we're going to go out and we're going to keep preaching Jesus. Right? I mean, just this unprecedented level of boldness. And so finally the council just gives up. They let him go because they realize they can't do anything. Peter and John come back to the church. And the church starts praying. And this prayer, an incredible prayer. If you have time, go back to Acts chapter 4. Read through this whole prayer. We're only going to look at one verse that I really want to key in on here. Acts chapter 4, verse 29, right in the middle of this prayer. This is what the people pray. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats, the council who had them on trial. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all what? With all boldness. There it is again. I mean, it just keeps coming up over and over and over. And so, so here's the thing. You know, I grew up in church. That's where I learned to pray, right? And, and it didn't matter if it was the church that I grew up in, if it was the church down the street, or any of the churches that I had gone to ever in my life. I never learned to pray like this. I mean, how many of you uh, have heard anyone ever ask to pray for traveling mercies, right? Yeah, okay, we got some hands going up. And uh, how many of you have ever seen somebody pray for traveling mercies in the Bible? Right? Yeah, me either. And so, so I'm thinking about that and, and what I'm reading here, because in the Bible, you know, we're always praying for safety. God, protect us. God, heal us, et cetera, et cetera. And in the Bible, they're like, no, God, just, we realize this world's broken. We realize that the threats are going to keep coming. We realize that all this is going to keep happening. Give us boldness to keep preaching your good news. No matter what happens, we may die at the end of the day, but may we die bold. That was what shifted the trajectory of the early church to launch them into this place where 5,000 people over the course of two chapters had suddenly encountered Jesus in a real way. They didn't even pray to God for the hearts of those who were persecuting them to change. They could have said, God, you know what? These, these religious elites just, just change, soften their hearts and, uh, and so that this persecution will stop and we can really just go out and start preaching at that point. No, may the change be in us, church. Listen, I mean, I, I say this all the time. What do we expect sinners to do? 
Okay, like three of you know, we expect sinners to sin, right? That's what they do. So, so we're not looking for them to change. We're the ones who God is actively working inside of us, changing things, rearranging things, making us uncomfortable. So may the change happen in us. Give us the boldness to go out and do the things that, they, that, that we need to do. Pray that God would remove the fear and replace it with boldness. And you know, when I'm reading through this whole story, I'm reminded, and I think back uh, in the Old Testament, the story of Esther. How many of you are familiar with the story of Esther? Okay, we got a good number of us. Uh, for those who aren't, though, let me give you a little bit of history there. It's an Old Testament story, and, uh, and it takes place in a time when Israel was being ruled by the Persians. And, uh, and so here's what we know. We know that every good story has to have a bad guy, right? Okay, yeah. So uh, this one has a couple, so it's going to be a real good story, okay? So to set the scene a little bit, your first bad guy on the scene, this guy's name is Haman, real good bad guy name, and uh, well, he worked for the other bad guy who was the king, and his name was Ahasuerus or Xerxes, and I like Xerxes because that just sounds like a bad guy's name, right? I mean, it fits the bill, and, uh, and so we've got Haman and Xerxes who are the bad guys here, and Esther actually became the queen meaning she was married to Xerxes, even though she was a Jew. And so Haman gets promoted in this kingdom, and, uh, and he ends up getting the king to pass a law because he wanted everybody to bow down to him, and Esther's uncle wouldn't do it. It's always the uncles, right? And, uh, and so he wouldn't do it. So Haman gets, he gets angry, he goes back to the king, and he gets the king to pass a law that will allow for all of the Jews to be killed. And so there's the tension in the story. The queen is a Jew, right? And so uh, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, he goes to Esther and he tells her that she has to be the one to fix this. That she's, she's the queen, she's their only hope. She's got to go to the king and get him to change this law. One problem though, the queen can't do that. If the queen goes to the king and he doesn't want to see her in exactly that moment, she gets killed. She's done, he finds another queen. Women are a dime a dozen in his kingdom. He can have whoever he wants. He takes whoever he wants, and you're disposable. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a brutal culture, but this was the reality that they lived in. And so Esther could say, yeah, I can go walk in there and talk to him, but I may get killed just like that, and now we have no hope. So if you're Esther, what do you do? Because see, maybe, just maybe, you get lucky and you're able to survive because you're the queen. And, and so when all the people come to kill the Jews, Xerxes, the king, he's got to protect you, his queen, right? Maybe you'll make it. Your uncle, probably not. Your friends, probably not. But maybe you'll make it. Now maybe, maybe you go to the king and fail. And now all hope is lost for everyone. And, and you had your chance. You could have not done that. You could have just tried to survive on your own. But you made the wrong decision. Or maybe it works. Maybe this plan is just crazy enough to work. Maybe it's just bold enough to work. So Mordecai and Esther are arguing about how they're going to save everybody's lives. And Mordecai says, my favorite quote in the entire book of Esther, he says this quote to her, Esther 4.14. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? Just such a time as this. Maybe this is what it's all been leading up to. Maybe you're at this point in your life 
Because this is where, right where God can use you the best. Maybe this is where you find your purpose. Uh, listen, church, if you checked out, I need you to check back in here. You, when you are in line with God, you are a world changer. You are a chain breaker. You are a powerful tool in the army of the Almighty, and you cannot be stopped when you're moving in the name of King Jesus. There is nothing that can stop you. Maybe you were created for just such a moment as this. Maybe you were created to change the world, to be bold, to do things that the rest of the world is scared of because that's what we're called to do in the kingdom of God. And I think to some degree, this is what separates us from the early church because we question, we doubt, what can God really accomplish through me? While the early church was thinking, what can God not accomplish through us? As long as we're in line with him, as long as we're doing the things that he's calling us to do, God is the one ultimately making everything happen, and God is limitless. Therefore, the things that can be accomplished are what? Limitless. I mean, if you would have asked me 10 years ago, to sit down and plan out the most successful life that I could possibly have come up with. My life would have looked just a little bit different than it does now. Uh, I probably wouldn't have planned to become a pastor at all, if I'm being totally honest. And uh, nothing against Porterville, but it probably wouldn't have been on my radar. And, uh, and yet, God has me right here as a pastor in Porterville. God has you right here where you are doing the things that you're doing right here and right now. And do you know what that means? It means perhaps everything in our lives has been leading up to such a time as this. Maybe this is where I change the world. Maybe this is where you change the world. God doesn't need us to be big-name people in big-name cities. He needs humble servants to realize that when we lay down our lives for him, well, that's when the Holy Spirit can get to work. And the Holy Spirit can and will turn this world upside down. You have the power to be a complete world changer because your power comes from God. That same power that resurrected Jesus from the grave, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, lives inside of us. There is nothing that we can't accomplish in his army as long as we're following him. Nothing. So, in the spirit of boldness, I want to call the church to some bold action. Are you guys ready for this? All right, well, we'll see what happens. Uh, I realize that all of us are in different places in our spirituality, and this may look different for each of us, and that's okay. Uh, but here's what I want. I want to call each of us for the duration of the series, three more Sundays after this one. I want to call us to fast and pray for the growth of this church and God's kingdom. Uh, and of course, I'll be doing this with you. And so uh, I know this is crazy. I know this is a lot to ask of some of you. Uh, some of us may have practiced fasting before, and we don't even flinch at the idea of this, uh, but I think that a lot of us are probably nervous about the idea of a three-week fast. So let me first say that I'm not asking anyone in here to not eat any food for three weeks. I'm not even going to do that, okay? So 
Uh, let me tell you exactly how I personally am planning on doing this. I am for the, the course of the next three weeks, I'm going to skip on breakfast and lunch and I'm gonna eat dinner every night. So I'm still gonna eat every day, but I'm only gonna eat dinner. And during breakfast and lunch times, I'm going to commit that time that I would normally spend eating to praying specifically for God to work in this church, for God to grow this church, for God to take us into the next phase of his kingdom. And maybe for you, this looks, uh, this looks different. That's okay. Uh, maybe you only skip breakfast, or maybe the fast doesn't have anything to do with food. Uh, choose something that consumes some amount of time during your day and spend that time instead in prayer. And let me give you some reassurance you'll probably fail, and that's okay. I will probably fail, and that's okay. Because this whole thing about following God is that over and over again, we're going to fail. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. We're waiting to be fully restored, but it's through the power of God that we get back up again, and we keep following him in spite of that failure. Because we are clothed in the robes of Jesus, in the righteousness of of Jesus. So failure does not and cannot ever define us. So we get back up and we keep going. And so that's what I'm calling us to do for the next three weeks. Uh, and if we really believe that the gospel has the power to transform lives, then we have to be all about it. Full devotion and extreme boldness and I firmly believe that God wants to change lives, heal families, save souls, encourage the broken, and he wants to do it here in Porterville. And I personally can't wait for all of us to be a part of that, to be participating in the things of God in his kingdom. And so some of you might be nervous about this fast. Pray for boldness. Use this as an opportunity to stretch your faith, even if it's just putting your toe in the water. Even if it's just giving that 1% instead of the 10. Just start experiencing God, and what you're going to notice is that He is good. No matter what, He is good. Listen, it was the boldness of Jesus that led Him to the cross to offer salvation freely to all of us. That should lead us to a similar boldness and willingness to share the gospel as if our lives depend on it. And who knows? Maybe right here where you are right now is exactly where God brought you to do something crazy, to bring the breakthrough that Porterville has been waiting to see. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are. And God, we pray collectively as a church for a spirit of boldness. We, pr we pray that you would remove all fear from us and that we would see King Jesus for who he is, that we would see his boldness that took him to the cross and that we would see that he is seated on high now, that he is Lord over all. And God, we just submit ourselves to you. We pray that you would give us what it takes to move through this fast, that you would remind us and encourage us to be in prayer, to be pressing into you, recognizing that there is nothing that we can do uh, to accomplish anything, but all of it rests in you. And so help us to leave it there. Help us to trust you with it. Help us uh, to do what you're calling us to do, to be the servants who you can and will use. 
God, we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for what you're doing in your church. We lift you up. We praise you. We give you all the honor and glory, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.